Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. Don't you just want Tyler to follow you around and introduce you as you like go places? That's why we became co-pastors. I wanted, I wanted that kind of introduction everywhere I went. Uh, well, as he said, my name is Chris. I'm one of the two co-pastors here at City Church, and I want to say a special welcome to anybody that is new. Uh, if this is your first time, welcome. Tyler did a great job describing what this new community is about, and we're very excited for kind of this preview service um, uh, session that we're in right now, and we're preparing for a big launch on Easter. So April 4th is like our formal launch. Uh, it's going to look a little different, but mostly the same. We're going to have, at least on April 4th, a 9 and an 11 a.m. service. And so for March, as we were dreaming about April 4th and then dreaming about the weeks and months after that and preaching through this book and that, we thought, you know, March would be really fun if we just did a few one-offs and, uh, and got to choose some of the things that we wanted. And so um, next week, don't miss it, we're not hearing from Tyler. We're not hearing from me. We're hearing from three other people in our church as like miniature messages, and it's going to be unbelievable. Last week, Tyler got to choose anything he wanted, and he chose to preach on worship, and it was so good. And so when I get to choose whatever I want to preach on, uh, this morning we're going to be talking about disappointment, hope, and the existence of evil. <laughs> I literally got to choose anything I wanted, and this is what I chose. I don't know what that says about me, but... The reason is because I've been in church for a while, and there is a little bit of this idea where, like, as a Christian, like, we have to have it all together, and as a follower of Jesus, like, you can't really be sad because Jesus is alive and he's on the throne, and, uh, and so there's this idea that you got to get it all together. You can fight in the parking lot, but definitely not in the church building. You can yell at your kids, but they're well-behaved in here. You can be lonely as you're walking in, but as soon as you come in, you're good because Jesus is alive and he's on the throne. Yes and amen, that's so true. But that's not the news that Scripture teaches. That's not the news that Jesus seems to teach. He seems to like have a little bit more nuance and tension there. And so if I could do anything on March 14th, I chose to at least address that topic and say, you know, it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to not always be at the height of your game. And so uh, we have a lot of like Bible work to do. I hope that's okay. So a lot of Bible work. If you've been around, you've heard me say this before, but relevance is relevance is coming, okay? And so if you want a little bit of an outline about where we're going, uh, we're going to be in Genesis, then Genesis, Revelation, Revelation, John, Genesis, Genesis, 2 Samuel, Isaiah, Malachi, Luke, Luke, and Acts. So get ready. Actually, yeah, for the millions of you streaming in online, everyone's losing their mind right now. They're so excited for so much of the Bible. You can't see it, but they are. And, and so relevance is coming. Give me 10 minutes. We're going to like go through all of scripture. And I want to find a little bit of a theme that starts in the beginning. You see it at the end. And then it kind of goes through the middle. And it's going to answer this question. What's the deal with disappointment? How do we have hope even though he's on the throne? But I feel sad. And we're hopefully going to arrive at like relevance in terms of how do we hold this intention as f- people that follow Jesus. And if you don't follow Jesus, this is a good insight into like, hey, this isn't just like some happy club that we're always like super joyful. Sometimes... Life is not so great for us too. So Genesis 2, 9, we're at the, almost the very beginning. 
Uh, It says, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out from the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and trees that were good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, or even if you're not, look at the back of your iPhone. They ate the fruit, okay? The knowledge of good and evil, that's what happened. That's how that kind of came about. And sin entered the world. And there's so much there. But for the purpose of this morning, sin entered the world and everything was fractured. And then in Genesis 3.23, because there's consequences to sin, it says the Lord God banished him, that's Adam and Adam and Eve, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Sin entered the world. And actually this, and you should read Genesis 2 and 3, but this is actually God's infinite mercy saying we've got to get them out of the garden because there's actually another tree there. It's the tree of life. And it says we can't let them eat from the tree of life because then they will live forever, which sounds on the surface like a good idea, except if everything is now perpetually and like unbelievably broken. So he, in his infinite wisdom, says, no, we've got to get them out of the garden because that would not be the state we want them to live in. And that is where we first see the tree of life. Now, we see how the beginning starts, and then we go to the very end. I want you to, like, for the two of you that have paper Bibles, take all of Scripture, turn it to the left, go to Revelation 21, one of my top five favorite passages, and you start to see a picture of how this whole thing ends. So this is in the future, and it says, he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And so it looks really good at the beginning, at least before like sin entered the world. It looks really good at the end. And also one chapter, again, to the, to the right, the very last chapter of the Bible, it's uh, John, the guy that's writing Revelation, sees this vision of what all of this is looking like. He's encountering God. And it says that there's a city, and his, he's seated on a throne, and there's a river running. And then in verse 2 it says, And on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Now, I want to stop right there. There's allusions to the tree of life between Genesis 2 and Revelation 22, but we actually don't see it at all. Like, there's no picture of the tree of life. It doesn't come back, actually, until Revelation 22. 1,188 chapters, and this tree has sort of gone missing. Like, we don't see it interacting. And so the, the whole premise of this morning, where we started off in perfection and we we're in a garden, we're ending in perfection and we're going to be in a city... The whole premise of evil, hope, disappointment is that we currently live between two trees. We live between two realities of perfection, and we see glimpses of what it used to be like, but man, I think I don't have to sell you that it's not fully what it used to be. We see glimpses of what it's going to be, but I don't have to sell you that it's not fully there yet. And so we live between two states of perfection. We live actually between two trees. And this is why you still feel that tension that emotion. You're not allowed to be hopeless. As followers of Jesus, we aren't allowed to be absolutely hopeless because it says that he's going to one day come back and wipe away every tear. There's going to be no more death, mourning, or pain. But if he's going to have to wipe those away, that must mean that they exist currently still. And so we live between those two times, and that's why we feel this tension. And to look at the existence of evil, which is like the big question, in Christianity, we have to at least be aware there's one God, but there is an existing force that is opposing him. And we're introduced to him in Genesis, but we even hear Jesus talk about him in the New Testament. 
Uh, sometimes he's called Satan, the devil, the accuser. Uh, John, or in John, Jesus refers to him as the thief. And he kind of gives the mission statement of this character. And he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It's the mission statement that he has come to do. So anytime we see something stolen, dead, or destructed, we can attribute that to at least this lesser but opposing force. And we're introduced to this character in Genesis 3. Uh, He comes about as the serpent, the one that tempted Eve. And so as God in Genesis 3, so now we're back to the beginning, as God in Genesis 3 is kind of laying out the consequences of sin, first to Adam and then to Eve, He gets to the serpent and he says this. He said, and for you, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so to this Satan figure, whatever you want to call him, he says, look, there's going to be some animosity between this woman and you, actually more between like all of her offspring, which is everyone, and all of your offspring. And then God gets oddly specific. And he says, not just all offspring, but there is coming one of those, and he will crush your head, but you're going to bruise his heel. And most theologians agree that this is the first time that we can see Jesus condemned to death. It's also the first time that we see God explicitly saying, it won't always be this way. We see some kind of hint that there is evil that exists, But there's coming a day when that will be no more. But I want you to notice that he says it's going to happen. It doesn't immediately happen. And so we live in this strange time when this this lesser but still powerful foe is allowed to exist and have some kind of authority. But we know there's coming he, whoever he is, you know, but whoever he is, He's going to come and he's going to crush his head. And so God starts to whittle this down a little bit. And in Genesis 12, uh, he starts to talk to another man named Abraham, Abram at the time. And, uh, and he gives, and this is going to help you sound smart, so please use this in normal conversation. He gives him what you call the Abrahamic covenant. Seriously, drop that. People will be impressed. And so in the middle of this Abrahamic covenant, God says, look, Abraham, I'm going to give you three things. This is uh, verses 1, 2, and 3. He says, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a nation, your descendants, of which you have none right now. Uh, Your descendants are going to become a nation. And then he says in verse 3, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And he says all peoples, not just your people, not just your descendants. He says all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And we start to see for the people like really familiar with the Old Testament and they're reading back through the Torah, they're like, okay, there's coming one who comes through Eve, which doesn't help you a whole lot because that's everyone. And then it gets a little bit more narrow and says, okay, there's this one that's gonna come through Abraham. Fast forward 1,080 years, now God's speaking again about this same person and he's saying it to King David. And in 2 Samuel 7, he's talking to David and he says, look, here's some things that are gonna happen in your life. And then he zooms out. And he says this on like a global level. He says, in your house, David, in your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. And this is in the spiritual sense. He's talking and he says, look, there's always going to be a king. There's going to be a king that comes from your line and he is going to reign forever. And so as a Jewish person, you're starting to see the picture come together a little bit where there's one that's coming from Eve and it's going to come from Abraham. Now it's going to come from David. And they've started to dub this person that's coming Messiah. 
the anointed one, the one that's supposed to bring the, the existence of evil to a close. And then, even 300 years, got two more verses, three, uh, 300 more years, God not only starts to speak about who's coming, but what will happen when he comes. And he starts to speak to a prophet named Isaiah, and he tells Isaiah, look, here is what it's going to look like when Messiah comes. Messiah is not just going to end something like in a non-dramatic fashion. It's going to bring a whole new kingdom. And, uh, and you've probably heard some of the verses I've read. I doubt this one's tattooed on your arm or like painted on your wall. This is Isaiah 11, 7 through 8. Bear with me. It says, the cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. Now, vegetarians, in a world where I'm opposed to most things of you, I have to admit, this looks a little bit like what you're after. (laughs) And God starts to paint a picture very prophetically, very poetically, through Isaiah, and he says, look, when Messiah comes, he's going to not just be like here and get rid of Satan. He's going to usher in some kind of new kingdom. And in this kingdom, what he's saying is there's going to be unbelievable peace. Actually, all violence is going to go away. You can like put these kind of animals together and it's going to be fine. You can put a kid near a cobra's den and it's going to be okay because there's going to be a new realm where peace exists and there is absolutely no more violence. And if you're Jewish, And you're reading through this, because remember, this is how the Old Testament was written, to Jews, for Jews. If you're reading through this, you start to get a little bit excited, because you hear about the one that's coming through Eve, through Abraham, through David, and you hear what kind of kingdom he's going to usher in. And in the very last chapter of of, of the Old Testament, Malachi, he even makes allusions to, hey, guys, this day is coming. And then there's silence for 400 years. And I want you to just for a second, imagine you're not, you're not American. Imagine you don't live in the year 2021. Imagine you're like 50, 60, 70 AD. You're a Jewish person, and you're, you're drenched in like these Old Testament scriptures. You would, you would know them all by heart, and you know what Messiah is going to do and what he's going to bring when he comes. And I want you to imagine you're handed a scroll, and they said, hey, I want you to read this. There's something, there's something here. I, I want you to read this. You know, my dad, who used to have his taxes collected by this guy, he wrote this, and he wrote it about a guy that he quit his job for and uh, started following around. He was some religious leader. And you, drenched in Old Testament prophecy, you start to read it, and it wastes no time. This is the very first verse in the New Testament. And to you, it's just a genealogy. To me, it's just a genealogy. But to the person reading it, to the person awaiting Messiah and awaiting the kingdom, you would have read this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the one that you've been waiting for. This is the one that's supposed to bring in that new kingdom. And you start to get excited because could it possibly be that actually all of these things that have been prophesied about, even though it's been over the scope of a thousand years, thousands of years, this could actually start to be. And so you start to dig into the life of Jesus, and maybe you read one of the other accounts in Luke 17, and you start to see a little bit of like, are we sure this is him? So if we're in Luke 17, uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time, they were aware what people thought about Jesus. They were aware that he might possibly have claimed to be the Messiah, the coming one, but they don't think that's true because there's no way that this could be like a carpenter's son. I don't think so. 
And so they tried to trick him, and they said, hey, Jesus, when, when the kingdom comes, what's it going to look like? Is it going to look like this? Is it going to look like that? And Jesus, you can read this in Luke 17, 21. Jesus says, look, the kingdom of God is not going to look like this or that. The kingdom of God is actually here in your midst. The kingdom of God is here. And he says, look, the one you've been waiting for, it's here. I'm here. But then, two chapters later, which isn't a measurement of time, but a little bit later, it gets a little bit more confusing because Jesus, in Luke 19, had to correct some of his disciples when they're like, hey, when's the kingdom of God going to be here? And it says that the, the people, his disciples, thought the kingdom of God was going to appear all at once, and Jesus had to correct them. And of course they thought it was going to appear all at once. Because Jesus, you just said that it was here. You just said the kingdom of God had actually come. And two chapters later, some time later, it says that Jesus had to correct them and say, guys, the kingdom's not here yet. And I, I want to maybe just stop and say, guys, the Bible sometimes con is confusing. I understand why, like, sometimes we just give up reading it. Because this seems like, in a religion that's supposed to have no contradictions, this seems like this possibly could be at end. And I don't know if I want to challenge it that much, so maybe I just won't want to read it. And I, I actually totally understand that. I do know that at any education level, at any experience with faith or not, you can read this book and you will get something out of it. And you can study it for the rest of your life and you still won't come to the end of it. And it's passages like this where we start to say, okay, what's going on? Because Jesus had said the kingdom had come. And then he's like, no, guys, it's, it's not it. It's not it yet. It's not fully here. And we'll go to the last verse, Acts 1. And we start to see the picture that Jesus has been painting. Acts 1, he has been crucified, he's been resurrected, he's been alive for 40 days, and he's about to go into heaven. And, uh, and I imagine this as like a passive-aggressive aggressive question. But in verse 6, his disciples, as they are aware he's about to leave, they're like, hey, um, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? A.K.A. like, Hey, are you going to, did you say you were going to do the dishes? I mean, you've, that might sound more familiar to you. Did you say that you were, I just forget, were you going to be there or not? I, you just weren't there, but I thought you were. And the disciples are like, hey, don't forget, like, when Messiah comes, which we, we're pretty sure you are that because, like, you just rose from the dead. When Messiah comes, there's not supposed to be any, like, oppression. And Rome's still here. And is, so is this the time, Jesus, that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus goes into heaven. And as you do, when someone goes into heaven, you're starting to look at that, because that's weird. And, and it says in verse 11, as the disciples were watching Jesus go into heaven, Jesus sent down two angels, and, it said, and they said this, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking at the sky? Which seems obvious, but why do you stand here looking at the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you will go back into heaven the same way you saw him go, or will come back from heaven the same way you saw him go. And the disciples, the people that were following Jesus, finally start to understand. He's coming back. And, and there's going to be like theological implications when he comes back. And, and they've been hearing him talk about this a lot, of like the kingdom of God is here, but the kingdom of God also is still to come. And, uh, and the disciples, the first followers of Jesus, started to understand what I'm about to say right now, is that the kingdom of God is here. And it's not yet here. The kingdom of God has come, but the kingdom of God has not yet fully come. And you, you, I promise, you've experienced this, especially if you've been around faith at all. 
Like when you pray for the sick and they get healed, the kingdom of God has come. When you're in moments of worship and you're like, man, I just don't think that's only music that I'm hearing. It feels like something deeper. The kingdom of God has come. When you start to get in those moments of like your deepest, darkest place, and all of a sudden you cry out to God and you feel some kind of peace, the kingdom of God has come. There is something supernatural that has actually come to earth. And the kingdom of God is not yet fully here. And I don't have to sell you on that one. Did you know that there still exists injustice, poverty, Did you know that there still exists things that are opposite of God? Did you know that there are things that are still happening in wars and violence? Did you know that, like, the kingdom of God has not fully come? Like, of course we know this. This is the easy one. And so this is what theologians, as smart as they are, this is the best they could do. So give them a break. They call this the already but not yet kingdom. I know. I know. Look, they've done a lot of other great things, but they call this theory, this theology, this doctrine, the already, but not yet. Because the kingdom of God has already come, and it's not yet fully here. And this is why we experience the tension that we experience. This is why you can experience life between not only two trees, but we experience life between two comings. And we mourn, and we can be sad because things aren't supposed to be this way. Disappointment still happens. We're allowed to experience those kinds of things because theologically, like at a top level, things are not as they should be. But in Thessalonians, Paul says that we grieve differently than the rest of the world. He says that we grieve not as those who have no hope. We grieve with one eye on what's going on, and we grieve with another eye on the sky saying, come Lord Jesus, make it different, renew the earth. We grieve differently than the rest of the world. And there's a couple ways, biblically, I think, that we see people responding to disappointment. Because, spoiler alert, the answer isn't just, like, keep saying Jesus is king until you feel better. Like, that's not how we deal with disappointment. Uh, The first one is that we can cry out to God. Cry out to God in the present. Uh, David, I've already mentioned him, he was great at this, so good, read some psalms, he's always crying out to God. And in Psalm 142, he says, I pour out my complaint before him, Before him, I tell him my trouble. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. So as a follower of Jesus, you are allowed to vent. You are allowed to pour out your complaints to God. You're allowed to tell him, God, I'm not really pleased with how things are right now. You're allowed to tell him the truth. You don't have to just keep uh, repeating that he's on the throne. The other thing that we do is not only in the present, but we remember his faithfulness in the past. You start to remind yourself of the times God's been faithful. Uh, There's this book in the Old Testament kind of tucked in the middle. It's called Lamentations. It's five chapters. And uh, and the author, uh, most people believe it's Jeremiah, who is a prophet. The author uh, takes David's cue, and he complains for about two and a half chapters. And he didn't know it was two and a half chapters. He just knew he was complaining for a long time. And his people were in captivity He had reasons. And he, for two and a half chapters, just lets God have it and says, look, I don't think it should be this way. And then something very strange happened in the middle of chapter three. In the middle of chapter three, he's still complaining. He says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them well. My soul is downcast within me. Yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. 
His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So Jeremiah, in the midst of like turmoil and disappointment, he says, but I, I can't ignore that you've come through in the past. I do, I do remember that time that you showed up in another situation like this. I remember how you've loved us with an everlasting love. And he starts to remind himself of how the Lord has been faithful to him. We can do the same thing. We can, in the midst of the deepest, darkest moments, we can say, but, ah, man, I, God, I do remember that time you did this. God, I remember the way that you came through for that. And we can start to remind ourselves and tell our soul, hey, remember, God is still faithful and there is still love. And so we cry out to him now, but we also remind ourselves that he is faithful. And the more that we experience moments like this, the more that we experience disappointment, the more that it makes us await his coming. The more that we're longing for him to come again. And again, Jesus, believing in Jesus, doesn't always make us happy. And, and so if you're not uh, what you would call a follower of Jesus, a Christian here today, I need to, I need to make sure you know this. If you make this decision, it's not just going to make you happy. But it does make us grieve in a bit of a different way. And if we're going to do this well, Tyler talked about one of our big formation or our big values is formation. If we're going to practice the way of Jesus well, if we're going to be formed into his image, we need to first acknowledge the fact that we can mourn, that we can be disappointed. We need to acknowledge the fact that weeping and crying and pain actually exist. And we need to acknowledge the fact that he promises it won't always be this way. We know that it won't always be this way, that there's a city that's coming, there's peace that's coming, there's redemption that's coming, there's violence that's going to be ended, there's injustice that will be no more. Eventually a day is coming where that won't be the case, but at least for the moment right now, we live in between those two comings. And there's a hope that we absolutely have because the kingdom has come. There's also a hope that is not yet fully here. And if you've been around um, Catherine and I for any amount of time, so Catherine was the one singing right here, uh, you know part of our story is uh, for four and a half years we've been trying to have kids. And uh, it's just, it's not happening. We don't know why. Uh, there's no medical explanation. Obviously, we're just in such great shape and health, so I don't know what it could be. And, uh, and so they've run all the tests, all the tests. And it's just not happening. And, uh, and so for two years, we lived in Vegas, and we were trying for kids, and it didn't happen. And we had this strange opportunity, like so amazing, where in between living in Las Vegas and moving to Cincinnati, we got to live in Spain, and we got to pull that off. And, uh, and so we're preparing to let go there, because I'm finishing seminary. She can work from wherever. We don't have to be here right now. And so you do what you, anybody would do, is you go live in Barcelona. And uh, as we were preparing to move there, uh, we had a bunch of friends in Vegas saying, look, guys, I think, I think your time's coming. I actually think it's going to happen in Spain. You're going to be relaxed. There's going to be no more stress. Like, I think it's going to happen for you in Spain. And we started to believe them, and, uh, and we tried. Oh, we tried. <laughs> and, uh, and guys, it didn't happen. We were there for like four months, and nothing happened. And I, I remember, and this is, this is a crazy story if you believe God can still speak, um, this is a big part of how I've heard the Lord's voice. I remember sitting on the beach uh, one day. I was by myself. It was like the second month we were there, and we had just found out, okay, this isn't happening this month. And I remember 
taking David's cue and complaining. And I was complaining a lot to God, and I said, God, I don't understand. Why is this so easy for us some? Why is it taking so long? I feel like we'll be good parents. I feel all of these things. And, uh, and I felt like the Lord, if you can believe this, I felt like the Lord spoke to me. And he said, but Chris, do you trust me? And, uh, and I'm a pastor. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, God, I trust you. But I really wish that there was, and he said, no, 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 but Chris, do you trust me? And I said, yes. And he said, Chris, trusting me is the sweetest place you can be. And I just knew as soon as I heard it, that's something to remember. He said, trusting me is the sweetest place that you can be. And two weeks later, uh, Catherine gets a call from one of our good friends who uh, said, wanted to tell us ahead of time that they were pregnant and they'd been trying for like two months. And, you know, that's always a bittersweet call. And so uh, they'd been not trying for very long. And I guess she's processing with the Lord and she's also taking David's cue and telling God how that's not fair. And, uh, and she said this to the Lord. She said, why have you chosen everyone else? Why have you not chosen me for this? And again, if you can believe it, she felt like the Lord said, Catherine, I have chosen you. And I've chosen you for intimacy with me. Uh, a couple weeks later, I, uh, we had like a 300-square-foot apartment. It was awesome. And Catherine wasn't there. And so I'm just watching YouTube worship, um, like a kind of a worship set. And it was good. It's going well. God was there. And, uh, and I remember this worship leader, her name, her name is Melissa Heltzer. She was sharing a story of how God, um, of how she wrote this song, wrote a song that she was about to sing. And she deals with chronic pain. And she woke up one morning. It was really bad. She said, God, take the pain away. And, uh, and God said, Melissa, I want, you, I want you to sing your way out of it. She's a worship leader, so that makes sense. But she said, no, not today. I just want you to take it away. And this goes on, like, she's brushing her teeth, take the pain away, I want you to sing your way out. And then she, and I'll never forget this, like, image. I didn't know this is how you blow dry your hair, if you have long hair. But, and I've heard this story before, I'm watching this, and she's like, I remember, she's like bent over, like blow drying her hair, and she's telling this story, and she's like, God, just take the pain away. And he said, Melissa, I want you to sing your way out of it. And, and I'm watching this. I've heard the story before. I know exactly what she's about to do. She's about to sing the first line of the song. And so as she's blow drying her hair, she says, I am strong and full of life. And uh, I can't explain what happened, but I just started to bawl. It, I, and I, I just started to weep. And it was like, I'm so thankful no one was there. It was so ugly. <laughs> like, it was such an ugly cry. And, uh, and I remember... Um, just cry, like such deep emotion, but my mind was like still with me, like I wasn't even sad. And, uh, and I had the wherewithal to say, God, something's happening, like because I'm like convulsing and crying. And I said, God, what's going on in my spirit that my mind is not aware of? And probably the clearest thing I've maybe ever heard from the Lord is he said, Chris, I want you to sing your way out of infertility. He said, I want you to sing your way out of infertility. And I knew immediately what he meant. And I don't know how, but I knew immediately he wanted me to write a song. Now, that's strange because I don't sing. I sing. Uh, I don't have, like, any musical ability. I really want to be a worship leader. I keep trying to try out, but Jalen, like, is busy all the time. I don't know. But I'll get up here one day, and uh, I'll get up here. And so it would have made more sense if God said, Chris, I want you to speak your way out of infertility. I want you to write your way out of infertility. But he said, Chris, I want you to sing your way out of infertility. 
And I knew he said, I knew he wanted us to write a song. So I'm excited, but I'm also like, that makes zero sense. So Catherine gets home, and I'm like, okay, I got to get a confirmation on this. So I was like, hey, what's up, Cat? How you doing? Uh, So weird. And I was like, hey, I want you to watch this video. Um, You know, just see, like, maybe worship. Maybe God will speak to you. I don't know. And uh, so I show her the video, and I'm like, so, yeah, what do you think, girl? Uh, Did God say anything? And she's like, well, obviously you think we should write a song together. And I was, the, the amount of disappointment I experienced in that moment is a lot. Like, because I needed God to confirm it, and apparently, I was like, how did you know that? And she's like, you're being so weird. <laughs> and I was bummed that I gave it away. And so I gave it away. She said, you're being so weird. But she, and I hadn't told her my story yet. And she said, but you know, this morning I was praying, and I felt like God said I'm supposed to write a song about infertility. And you can believe whatever you want, but I believe God is real. So I tell her that story that I had, and it's one good singer but doesn't play any instruments, and another nothing, that apparently God is asking us to write a song. And, uh, and so we're going to sing the song that we wrote right now, uh, if the band wants to come up. And, uh, and here's what's powerful, I think, about this song is I just want to let you know, there's no pregnancy announcement at the end of this. There's no, like, here's our two-year-old, and remember how God was faithful. We are still very much in the midst of this. It's still very much real. But we've experienced an intimacy with God that there's no way that we would have if we weren't taken through this process. And, uh, of course, I have a little sway around here, so... That's part of the reason we're singing this song. And this song means a whole lot to two people in this room. But I also believe that it's powerful because we're still in the midst of it. And it is for anyone who is waiting, but yet does not have the answer to what they're waiting on. And it's for anyone who has been praying or longing for something, and it just has not happened. And I know that's more than two people here. And we believe that this is powerful. And what we've experienced in our life is that in a moment, in a moment, everything can change when you experience the intimacy and the presence of God. In a moment when God shows up, everything can change. And so we're going to worship and we're going to believe that God is faithful in the midst of trying and hoping and waiting.